What do you do on Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all. Oh, oh I'm not acting. <laughs> you think this is a love affair? I saw you, Erica. Meeting in the middle. This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Murtada El Fadl. Welcome to Sundays with Kate. This is Murtada El Fadli, your host, and I would like to welcome you to this new episode of the podcast. Today, we are discussing the new Netflix film, Don't Look Up. And my guest for this conversation is writer and critic Boyd Van Huey. Boyd, welcome. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for having me. This is um, exciting. I'm, I'm very unprepared because I, normally I would take notes when I see a film, but I, when I saw this film, I had no idea this was going to happen. So um, we'll see how this goes. It, it hasn't been that long since I've seen it, so we should be all right. Um, it should be. Yeah, it should be fine. I think all my notes were just what Kate said because I thought she was very funny and all the things that she said, um, particularly when she was trying to hook up with Leo DiCaprio. I thought that was very funny, yeah. but we're, we're getting deep into it um, <laughs> immediately. Um, so let's set up the film. So Don't Look Up is this new film from Adam McKay. It's a satire, a comedy about two level, two, as IMDb says it, two low-level astronomers. This is Leo DiCaprio and, Laura, and Jennifer Lawrence, who go on a giant media tour to warn mankind of an approaching comet that will destroy planet Earth. This is sort of the log line of the film, but the film is really um, on a sort of satire about climate change. So there is this uh, catastrophic event that's coming to Earth and nobody seems to care, which is basically how we all are behaving about climate change, or at least governments are. Um, and most people too. So, um, and I think this was sort of the the reason why Leonardo DiCaprio is making a comedy after a long time, why he is doing a movie on Netflix. He's always been somebody who only worked with top-notch directors like Scorsese and Tarantino, et cetera, on these big productions that, you know, go on and make lots of money at the box office. But he's doing this because he cares about climate change. So Boyd, I first, I just, before we delve into who Kate plays and who, and who, uh, and you know, what we think of the film, I just want to ask you first about Adam McKay. So Adam McKay is um, a, known for his comedy. He did movies like Anchorman and Step Brothers. And then recently he's become um, a favorite of awards bodies with movies like The Big Short and Vice and now Don't Look Up, which has been getting nominee, nominations for best film from places like AFI and Critics' Choice and all of that. But I think his relationship with critics has sort of gone in the other way. Most critics really liked his comedies, but now, especially with these last two movies, Vice and Don't Look Up, the critical reaction to them has been mixed negative. So... <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which, which I think is very interesting. But um, before before we talk about um, uh, Mr. McKay, I, I do want to go back briefly to the lock line that you read out because I, I think it's so interesting. I'm assuming that Netflix wrote this actual log line. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is interesting about it um, is that they're talking about two low-level um, scientists, which is really a Trumpian way of talking about scientists. And the movie itself explains this 
I mean, there's a joke about them not being Ivy League, so the, the president will never listen to these people because they're not real scientists if they haven't gone to an Ivy League university, even though they work at other universities. Yes. Um, so it's very interesting that that the you know some of the things that the movie is trying to satirize has actually sort of ended up being used as a, a in promo material for the movie. So the person that wrote that copy obviously did not understand that or didn't think that that was important enough or funny. So I just wanted to point that out before we started. Yeah, yeah that, um, that's totally true. Yeah. I mean, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. Uh, very, very strange. I don't know how they got past um, whoever's responsible for that. Yeah, yeah. And it is a running joke that they, I think they're at Michigan State. And every time they say they're from Michigan State, people react to them like, really? Is that a thing? Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, in a way, I mean, it's a funny thing to satirize, but you do not want to use that to sort of reinforce that uh, sort of fake division between uh, Ivy League universities and other universities that do uh, work uh, just as well, if not better, and you know, in, when we're talking about specific, uh, yeah, when they're specialized or, uh, in a particular, study. Study. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this whole thing is completely ridiculous. Um, but um, let's go back to Adam. Um, I must say, I'm not super familiar with uh, with his uh, filmography because I'm not a big American comedy fan. I'm, I mean, my beat is European film, so I don't watch that many. Um, so, um, but I, I think what you're saying is true. I have the sort of sense that when his movies were um, simpler is maybe not the right word, but when they were not straining for meaning, let's maybe put it that way, mm -hmm. um, critic, critics tended to enjoy them more um, because they were not meant to be weighty or they were not meant to, to carry any weight or, or talk about important topics. Mm -hmm. And now that he's been trying to do that, um, I think critics, I don't know, have... They try to to point out things maybe where they, where that hasn't where he hasn't fully succeeded in doing that or or all the things that are wrong with it um, and I think that's a very interesting I think it tells us just as much about the critics as it does about his desire to make a different kind of film yeah um, because because um, sort of popular mainstream comedies um, you know sort of check your brain at the door type entertainment is is treated in a different way or is looked at differently and and analyzed differently um, even from a critical perspective than um, films that have something to say or that, that might say or reveal something about the world that we live in now or that we've recently been living in. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm also not American, even though I do live in America and have lived here for a long time. So, yeah, sometimes American comedies sort of pass by my head just because I didn't grow up watching that sort of comedy. Um, so I never actually liked those comedies because I, you know, and they're also their bro comedies, which is kind of not something I'm into, but I appreciated that they were trying to satirize something, which I think if you look at something like Anchorman, that was a movie that was trying to satirize toxic masculinity in the 1970s. Um, you know, to varying degrees, I think I didn't find the jokes funny, but I appreciated sort of the sentiment, um, um, with his new movies, I have to say, I have not been a big fan of these movies. Um, like, for instance, Vice, I just thought, why are we doing a story about Dick Cheney? Um, and also, like, it, it just makes obvious statements about Dick Cheney. Yes, he was not interested in anything except power. We know that. Mm. Um, you know, the Iraq war was a big lie. We know that. I don't know that the movie presented anything new, which was my one issue with it. Yeah, I think that well, this is the problem when you try to talk about weightier issues. It's like, uh, to to what extent, like, when will we be satisfied with the job that they're doing? You know, like, mm -hmm. to what extent do they need to give us something new or something different? Um, and and I think that that is 
sometimes that is a problem. Um, and, and it's also interesting because very often this is where you get the sort of um, uh, split uh, between like how the audience feels about a film and, and how the critics uh, might feel about a film because the critics are watching every single film that is satirizing the, the, what happened in Iraq or whatever, what happened, what's happening uh, politically in the country. And um, so we, we watch a lot of them. So very quickly after you've seen, you know, five of them, you see how one is better than the other and you're, you're comparing everything. Whereas an audience, you might have seen only one or zero. So it, it feels already a little fresher just because they're not watching everything that's out there and they don't have to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, I think that, that there is uh, an advantage to being uh, in, in the audience as compared to being a critic that has to sit through all these things, uh, maybe. Yeah, um, totally. I agree. Um, so let's talk about Don't Look Up. So we won't call them low-level astronomers anymore. But anyway, they are astronomers. <laughs> they <laughs> so, are. <laughs> uh, so Leo is sort of like... Um, uh, Jennifer Lawrence plays this PhD candidate. Leo is her supervisor. And she's like one day just looking at comets and finds this comet hurtling towards Earth. And it's a big discovery. And they're like, we're all going to die. It's a big enough comet that it can cause catastrophe, destruction of the whole Earth. They go to the president, um, played by Meryl Streep and her chief of staff son, played by Jonah Hill, along with another um, scientist played by Rob Morgan. And they present this. And basically, the president and her chief of staff are just like, uh, I don't know, right now we're kind of riding um, high in the polls. We don't want to, you know, touch that because of elections and whatever. So let's just leave this. And of course, they are um, flabbergasted that that's their reaction. So they decide to go to a newspaper, which kind of, they called it the New York Herald, but it's actually obviously the New York Times. And the New York Times really? is like, all right, we'll publish it, but you have to go on a media tour to um, sell the story. And so they go to the morning show um, where Kate appears. She's one of two anchors of this morning show. And if, you're, if you live in America, you've seen these morning shows. I think if you live anywhere in the Western world, you know these morning shows. Um, so she's kind of like an amalgam of Fox, MSNBC, Kelly Ripa, whoever, you, you know, whoever your, your morning show is. Take your pick, yeah. And Tyler Perry is her co-anchor, and that's where the the story sort of, you know, starts jumping in, and and they try to sell this, but of course nobody listens to them, and so they keep doing it until until the comet comes to Earth. <laughs> so no spoiler, but you know you can't really change a comet um, path. And so, unless unless you drill holes into it like they did in Armageddon, you know. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that was I was waiting for for one Armageddon joke, but I didn't get one, so I was very disappointed. <laughs> yeah. So, Boyd, let me t- ask you first: Did you laugh? Was this a funny movie? Yes, I did. Um, I, I laughed more actually than I uh, I thought I was going to, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. But I do have to immediately say that for me there's like a very big difference between like what's a successful comedy and 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 how often does a person need to laugh for it to be a successful comedy because i think movies can be uh very successful or very unsuccessful um in a way that is completely divorced from there being funny jokes in it or not mm-hmm. if that makes sense but um, it is I a comedy i i think with a comedy you gotta laugh a little right Oh well, yes, of course. No, I mean, if you know that the, that the movie is not working, if it if it says or if it pretends to be a comedy, but no one's laughing, I mean, I think yeah. that, 
that's sort of the baseline of it. But just because someone is laughing while watching a comedy doesn't mean that the comedy is good, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, the, comedy, this, the comedy can have good jokes in it, but the thing itself might still not function on multiple levels. Um, I think here it's sort of, a, for me, a sort of mixed bag. I think some of the things are quite interesting, and, and uh, some of the things also don't quite work. Um, so I wouldn't say that I'm the biggest fan of Don't Look Up, but I, also, I mean, at the same time, I had a good time watching it, I think. Um, and there were some surprising things in it and some funny things. And um, I, I enjoyed it overall. It was not like I felt like I'd wasted two hours of my life. Yeah. Um, and I saw it in the cinema, I have to say, which maybe also added to the enjoyment somehow. You know, it's, it's yeah. very different than sitting at home, you know, while sort of checking your phone at the same time and, and, and folding the laundry and then also watching the movie. So, um, no, I, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I also saw it in the cinema and I saw it in this screening. It was an award screening. I think most of the people in that were members of the Screen Actors Guild. And it was like the best um, circumstances because it was the Paris Theater next to the plaza in New York. Beautiful cinema. And then there was Leo and Meryl after in the Q&A and Jonah Hill. And but. I think why I asked you, did you laugh, is because my audience really laughed. Like, they were laughing at every joke. Everybody, I think, was ready to come out and have a good time. So they were laughing at everything. All the big stars got, you know, clapping and ovations when they appeared on screen as if it was a a theater show, not a movie. Mm -hmm. Like, when Meryl's first scene, you know, everybody clapped. Leo's big monologue, everybody clapped. The minute Kate appeared or Timothy Chalamet, everybody was clapping. So it was with like- With that hair, with that hair. I, that got a laugh out of me. Oh my God. That is, yeah. I thought that that was a genius thing. I mean, I'm sorry. You cast Timothy Chalamet who's famous for his hair and you do that to his hair. I mean- I know, <laughs> an, an ugly hat or whatever he had on his head. I don't, I can't even call it a hat, whatever. No, exactly. Yeah, it's an yeah. um, un- unidentified uh, <laughs> object on his head. Yeah, um, pretty, pretty terrible. Yeah. So I think my reaction was a little skewed because I just didn't find every joke funny to what you were saying. And I, I spent the whole time sort of amazed at, at the reaction around me. I felt like an island of sort of bewilderment. Like, is this movie this <laughs> funny or these people just want to have a good time? So I think it skewed, it skewed my perception a little bit. I think, I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, but I have the impression that, I mean, the last two years has been so relentlessly bleak for for like 99% of the people on the planet that we're ready for a laugh, you know, and and I think we might be a little bit more intelligent, or at least a lot of people might be a little bit more intelligent when they're watching a comedy, especially if you go to a theater, I mean, you set that time aside, I mean, you can't do anything else. It's sort of like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to be entertained, give it to me now, and Maybe if this movie would have come out five years ago, it wouldn't have been. I mean, the reception, the public reception might have been a, a little bit different because, you know, they, they would have had to work harder, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in any case, that was the that was the impression that I got in my screening. I mean, for me, it was a paid screening. I went to a, just a regular sort of a, a screening. Um, and I mean, the reception was not as crazy as you're mentioning. Um, but I mean, Meryl wasn't there. So, you know, that also explains it. Maybe. <laughs> that changes everything. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That does change a lot. <laughs> but um, but I think people really people really enjoyed it. Um, even though I have to, I think that one of the things that got really got me thinking uh, after watching the film and after it finished was sort of the question: Okay, how like is it possible? Is it really possible to make a very intelligent 
movie, a very intelligent comedy, but a very attention movie in general about something that is so dumb or that is, has been so dumbed down. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. It's like if the thing that you're satirizing is like, I mean, normally in order to satirize something, like you make, you make it simpler and you exaggerate something um, mm. for, for the sort of faults to stand out. And that's why it becomes funny. But in this case, there's nothing really to satirize. Like you're just showing reality. And, and yeah. so, so in that sense, maybe it's harder. It's a harder thing to do. It's like, what kind of intelligent thing can you say about something that is actually really hard to satirize? I mean, yeah. it's a, a, we're living in, the, in this version already. It's not that different from, from what we've gone through in the last four years. Yeah, exactly. Um, I I think the timing of this movie, the timing of this movie, sort of works against it because obviously Adam McKay wrote it before COVID, and wrote it mm-hmm. as a satire of climate change, and chose this catastrophic comet hurtling towards Earth as a metaphor for climate change. And then well, COVID and Trump happened. and Trump, um, and Trump who's also yeah. not who's who's not there anymore. So that is also it sort of feels like it's a little bit late. <laughs> exactly. Um, but he didn't know because COVID happened right as they were starting to, you know, getting ready to start shooting the movie. I mean, in yeah. interviews and stuff, he says that he has changed it. I don't know what the changes are, but it's, but to your point, it seems like maybe the movie is a couple of years too late because yep. yes, climate change is not like a catastrophe that's destroying Earth right now. It might destroy it in, I don't know, 10, 20, 50 years, whatever. But COVID is, has destroyed our life as we know it. So this, to me, this is why I was sort of uncomfortable when watching this movie, because everything in it was sort of things that we've already lived. Like, you know, not taking um, the word of scientists, not, um, or making light of it. And, you know, a gov- governments that don't care, just care about winning elections and how they, you know, how they appear to the public to win their votes and, and all of that. So it all felt the things that we actually lived in. So that's why to me, I was just like, this is not really funny. And I couldn't, I couldn't laugh because it was just too real. Too real. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag too real. <laughs> yeah, no, I can, I can, I mean, that, that was the thing that I was that really got me thinking, you know, when I left the cinema, I was sort of like, we're seeing this movie at a very specific time. And, and yeah, it's very interesting to think about if this movie had come out two years ago, or if it would come out in two years, it would be a completely different film. Um, and then, yeah, on top of that is the question is like, how do you make a smart comment about something that is so stupid? <laughs> um, yeah. it, it's, I think that that is also hard. I mean, I think it, it's, We've seen a lot of, I mean, there have been some very good movies that sort of satirize American politics, but the politics were not that crazy at the time. I mean, they had, so you could do, uh, like pick one or two details and, and um, enlarge it so that people would get it and that would make it funny or that would make it worrying or that would make mm-hmm. it something. But now it just sort of feels like you're watching a documentary and they sort of photoshopped in famous people's faces, you know? <laughs> so. <it's>, uh, <laughs> It is true. Also, like, one of the things is, like, you know, so the targets of the satire, like, there is a president played by Meryl Streep. It's, yep. it's as if they just change the gender of Donald Trump. Um, well, exactly. Is, this is the thing. that did, They didn't do anything else. It's just sort of yeah. like, let's, I mean, uh, the one thing that they did was, like, to not make it too obvious, let's make it a woman. But, I mean, that mm-hmm. is not that big a change. Like, it's not, it's not the gender that is ruling the country. It's the politics. So, yeah. And then it's it's sort of like um, Mark Rylance plays this sort of evil but also childlike tech billionaire 
who is the one who's basically controlling everything, including the government and everything in the world and how you react to it, which is kind of scary and kind of funny. Like he is, I thought, I wouldn't call it the best performance, but his performance is the one that sort of like is doing something very specific. He speaks in this baby voice. He's like... The he's, voice he's, is amazing. Yeah. and But also like we've seen those people. We know those people. So the shorthand to the avatar in real world is... It's very easy for the audience to get, which I think that's why people might get it immediately and maybe find it funny and laugh. But also, I just found it easy target. Like, there was nothing sort of very smart. So I'm, is, is Adam McKay sort of undercutting his own satire by making his targets so obvious? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. It's a, and as I said, I mean, that's where, even though you might be laughing, it might not be all that intelligent what they're trying to do, you know. It sort of, mm-hmm. sort of remains funny on a, on a very superficial level. And maybe, you know, is it funny... Is it laughter of desperation or laughter just because it's funny? You know, <laughs> uh, there's different kinds of laughter as well in terms of the how recognizable things are and and uh, yeah, what 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 is funny? I mean, are you just laughing to to avoid crying? You know, is that what what's happening? Yeah, <laughs> in, in some cases, yeah. Um, so I want to ask you, Boyd, about sort of do you remember sort of um, a scene or a moment that you found really funny or smart? So you know, we've already kind of talked about what doesn't work. So let's talk a little bit about what works. I think the first thing that popped into my head, but I, I think it might be a little bit too obvious, and I'm not going to talk about it too much because it is really at the very end. It's a sort of epilogue scene, um, which even though it was so obvious that it was coming, it was still funny. I thought that that worked really well. And I mean, I'm normally the, the kind of person that hates that kind of thing where it's so obvious where the thing is going mm-hmm. um, and so that sort of doesn't make it funny but somehow there's still I don't know I think it has to do with the semi-spoiler semi-cryptic spoiler with the sort of uh, the fact that the, what happens to a particular character feels good and, and uh, so there's sort of like sigh of relief yeah so <laughs> this is a, a main character played by a beloved actor and you know mm-hmm. yeah this movie is on Netflix and it's been on Netflix for, I think, a week now. So I think people have watched it or if you don't want to be spoiled, fast forward 30 seconds. This is how Meryl dies, right? This is what you're talking about. The yep. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, you could see it coming from a mile away. Um, or, But I don't know. I think that there was something about that sort of comeuppance that was just very... Uh, cathartic and and relieving in a way which is sort of like in a moral universe this is what's supposed to happen but which in real life will never happen i mean this is really yeah. the fictional part of it and it's it's also kind of like Chekhov's gone because they set up this joke from the very from early on in the movie mm-hmm. um and they kept referring it to at least a couple of times through the movie and then so there is this big payoff so yes i agree like that that was one of the better moments. My sort of funny things, and maybe I'm biased, this is a, a podcast about Kate Blanchett after all, is just all the time that Kate was flirting with Leo. So from the very beginning that he appears on her show, she as this um, morning news anchor, her name is Brie Ivanti, and her job is to sort of put a positive spin on the news, no matter how bad it is. So she is styled like this fembot, right? Like the hair is too blonde, the teeth are too wide, the the um, costumes are too tight. It's, um, she is, the, the look is amazing. But also just the minute she sees Leo, she starts flirting with him. And, 
and then sort of like it keeps paying off like as if they they keep apping the ante so first she flirts once they start having an affair um she all she wants like her pillow talk to him is all about how we're all gonna die and, and the earth is and it's sort of like as if she gets off on that and so i just found this joke with this character to be very funny and the way she and leo sort of played it was was a highlight i think yeah no i think so too and and, and i think she's the one that starts the whole he's the sexy scientist uh, uh sort of meme that gets created yeah <laughs> um even though in the beginning he still looks very uh, uh, unkempt. I mean, I mean, and then things get better. But uh, yeah, I thought that, that was. I mean, you can only do that also with an actor uh, like Leo. I mean, you can't do that with an unknown actor. Uh, if an unknown actor looked exactly like that, people would be like, "Oh, what?" Yeah, <laughs> we know what Leo looks like. Uh, um, you know or what he can look like. Yeah. Um, so I mean, obviously they they play with that as well. And I think in 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 general they the whole cast. I mean, they've chosen the people very well in the sense that they, there is a sort of um, general nudging and winking in, in the direction of the audience in terms of you know how they use this this, this star's own personas and uh, and their careers off screen. I mean, they're not not necessarily that they're taking the piss, but I mean, they're they're the movie's aware of it and yeah. um, make sure that you're aware of the fact that they're aware of it. So um, I think that that was very enjoyable. Yeah. Even though, I mean, for, for me, honestly, like if we have to talk about how credible this emotional relationship is between the two characters, uh, yeah, I did not buy that for one second. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just um, like, it's it's kind of funny, but yeah, maybe it won't happen, right? Like it's... Um... Yeah, exactly. I mean, she would want it to happen for sure. And I can totally <laughs> see her do it, but I, he's such a like sort of science numbers person. It's like, why would he do that um and also just the way he behaves socially in in other contexts with other characters he just doesn't seem like the kind of person that would sort of like plunge into a sort of extramarital affair just like that in two seconds um even though she looked like that i mean and even there i mean for me she looks i think that's part of the point too like she looks a little bit too botox and a little bit over the top a little everything is just a little bit too much too much. Um, Everything is too much. Yes. But which, I mean, it, on, on one hand, it makes it funny, but on the other hand, it, it makes it harder for us to believe that Leo would actually do that, you know, even though he yeah. has a family back home. And um, um, and this is the other thing about Leo's character, I think, to what you were saying, like Leo plays suave a lot. Like if you look at Gatsby or Inception, he's the anti-suave here. He is very nervous. He's sweating a lot. He's like afraid of um, being in crowds, of talking to the media, of doing anything really. And and so this is like, if you're going for Leo as matinee idol, this is not that performance and he's playing against type. And I found I found his performance funny. And I also, I always like Leo. I think he always brings something extra. And I think he brought a sort of, um, gra- like he grounded the movie in reality when everybody else around him was basically like Meryl and Jonah Hill, even Kate, they're all going like, 17 up big trying to to sell the comedy and he yes he has comedic moments but also he has these moments where he grounds the movie in reality and that's kind of why I liked his performance and so there is a meta a meta commentary there not only is he playing against type but he isn't in a love triangle with two women over 40 his wife is played by Melanie Linsky which if we know Leo from real life he's not interested in in anyone <laughs> over 25. <laughs> so, 
Oh, I, I mean, if it's a love triangle, then the, yeah, then the number needs to be under 35. That's what I'm saying. It's like, <laughs> I think it's interesting. His uh, performance, sorry, is probably the most interesting performance for me in the film because he gets to play very different registers um, mm-hmm. and he almost pulls it off. I think the writing sometimes let him, lets him down. As I said, I don't buy the fact that he uh, starts a relationship with uh, Brie Avante, with, I mean, a fabulous name. I love that name. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I, I wonder how long it took them to workshop something like that, because it sounds so credible. Like, of course you would be a morning news anchor. <laughs> the names are so funny, because he's Dr. Mindy, which is also a great name. And Jennifer Lawrence is Kate DiBiaschi. So all the names are kind of, are jokes in and of themselves. Yeah, no, I think in that sense, it's, I mean, of course, in a, in a comedy, you can get away with that. So that's, um, it's very smart. Like you can, you understand what, who these characters are. Like there's half of the backstory is just the name of the character. Um, <laughs> yeah. They use it as a sort of shortcut to sort of say, this is the kind of person that this is. Um, but it works. So why not? I mean, in a comedy, you don't want to waste time with everyone's backstory because it will just weigh everything down. You know, let's get straight to the action. We were talking about Leo's performance and Leo gets sort of the big scene in this movie. So I've watched some interviews and, you know, I was in a Q&A and it seems there is a shorthand. Everybody involved with this movie will try to drop two very famous movie titles as this is what this movie is a cross between Dr. Strangelove and Network. I have literally heard those in almost every interview I have. Um, scene for this movie and Mm -hmm. to that end leo gets the peter finch like big monologue delivered um he's sitting right next to kate on her morning tv show and he delivers this monologue about basically how you know we won't spoil the monologue but basically if you've seen network you kind of know this i'm mad as hell and i'm not gonna take it anymore he doesn't say those words but it's basically that he he doesn't say those words but he kind of does you know like in between the lines (laughs) I think this was a moment where it was so obvious. If you if you're familiar with Network, that is, it was basically like a an homage, really. That scene, um, if we yeah. don't want to say that he was, it was just stolen from <laughs> Network. There are a few scenes that really need to be in there, and and I'm sure that Leo also, uh, you know, uh, was very adamant about about having these scenes there, because even though it is a comedy and it is satire and and things are over the top, the subject is a very real one, and. Um, that's, I think, why his, his, his uh, character in general is so interesting because he gets to play like more comedic notes and, and crazy notes of satire and, and things that are over the top. But also, he is the one that is telling the audience this is a serious issue and we need to think about, you know, what, what do, how do we solve this thing? Yeah. Um, so he has the broader spectrum of, um, of notes to play, I think, from, from all the characters. Um, yeah, totally. Also, why. Which is also why we we can relate to him more, I think, than uh, than some of the other ones. I mean, I loved Kate in this, but I can't relate to her character at all. Like, yeah. I mean, I know people like that, but I I have nothing in common with these people. At yeah. least I hope I don't. So, um, <laughs> no, boy, you and Kelly Ripa are exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I need to I need to do something about my hair in that case because yeah, um, and maybe shave. Yeah, I'm just saying. <laughs> Oh. No, I think you're absolutely right, even though in general, I, I, I've heard these comparisons being made too. And, and from, for my uh, money's worth, I would say that um, both Network um, and uh, the Kubrick film, I think they're, they're, they're smarter satire than this is. 
But I think part of the reason why they feel so smart is not necessarily because the writing was super smart, but it's just because it turned out that they were very um, good at predicting the future, you know? <laughs> um, so that makes them feel smart for us. Um, so I, it would be interesting actually to actually watch all three of them in, in a row and see how smart the satire of each is compared to the other ones. I think you're correct in saying this one is probably not as smart. And I agree with that. But it's also, you know, it's just marketing. This is how they're trying to sell it, I think. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, one person we, we haven't talked about is the main star of the movie, the top build star of Don't Look Up, who it's Jennifer Lawrence coming back to movies after a while. Um, there are other lots of other performances. We're going to dig into it. Um, a little bit more, but before we get to Lawrence and the other cast members and the performances and who rose to the top and who sank to the absolute bottom, I have a candidate for that. I'll see who your candidate is. Um, (laughs) Boyd, I wanted to ask you, um, you have a new gig. Why don't you tell our listeners about the final verdict? Um, Yeah, um, so I've been a trade critic for, oh God, over a dozen years, I think. Um, people probably know me from The Hollywood Reporter, and before that, I was a critic at Variety. Uh, but since September, um, so a few months now, I've been uh, one of the senior critics at The Film Verdict, uh, which you can find at thefilmverdict.com. Very easy, very simple. Um, you just need to sign up once, and then you can read everything. Uh, it's only reviews, so it's really um, for people that that are interested in, in you know, getting... Uh, critics' point of view on all the movies coming out, and specifically the movies coming out um, of the festival circuit. Because um, mm. I think that there was... The, the, the regular trades are paying less attention to international films um, mm-hmm. each and every passing year, which is such an interesting development since Parasite won <laughs> so recently. I know, um, right. A boatload of Oscars, so to me this doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but I think that there is room for um, a new... Uh, I mean, a place where people can really find, you know, what are the interesting movies mm-hmm. internationally? I mean, we we review some American films, but it is really about um, international cinema as a whole. Where I mean, American film is part of that, but um, you know, what are interesting movies from all the other countries and all the other continents? And um, uh, we're doing it for the people that are in the industry, but also for just people who love cinema. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's become easier now actually to see a lot of foreign films than it used to be like ten years ago with all the different streaming. Uh, possibilities that are out there so um yeah i would definitely recommend signing up for that and uh, reading along yeah and i think i i sort of first noticed it when you i think launched with the venice film festival a few months ago right? yeah. yeah 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 i reviewed spencer so that was that was fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean that is that is a festival movie as well you know it's yeah. a small film it's by a foreign director um or at least foreign to the uk where the movie is set um even though it was shot in germany you know it's one of those international things um but um, yeah, speaking of movies that are bombastic, I, I yeah, I'm very taken with that one. Not that not that funny, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thefinalverdict.com, um, go check out Boyd's work there. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit. So this is a huge cast. So I think we mentioned Leo and Meryl and Kate and Tyler Perry and Jennifer Lawrence. Rob Morgan is in this movie. Jonah Hill is in this movie. Ariana Grande is in this movie. We already mentioned Timothy Chalamet. And like every time, like there were people there that I didn't know were in this movie when I went into it. Um, Ron Perlman plays a sort of some... He's like a hero type character, but I'm not really yeah. sure either. It's, it's, it, yeah, it's, um, 
a very interesting character. Not there for very long. <laughs> I wanted to sort of go and go over the cast, and we can talk about Jennifer Lawrence first, and then talk about everyone else. We already talked about Leo. I think Leo is sort of like the we've got Leo covered. Yeah, yes, he's the indeed. heart of this film. He also brought the pesos. He's like he is. I think the best performance. Um, he's the reason to watch this. But how? What do you think of Jennifer Lawrence in this film, Boyd? Um, I I thought she was okay. I mean, the, 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 I I don't think she's a great comedic actress. But also the way that her role is written, it's not. She's not the one that has to overplay anything because she's mm-hmm. supposedly the voice of reason. But the junior voice of reason next to Leo's senior voice of reason. Yeah. Um. So I thought she was fine, but it's also not a role where you can sort of steal any kind of scene that you're in. I don't think, um, because the movie was not written that way. Yeah, I think it's the writing. You're right. I, I was kind of surprised by how unmemorable she is in this movie. Um, she has the biggest part. She is top build, and she is in a lot of scenes. Um, and she gets to play with all most of these actors, with Leo and Meryl and Jonah and Timothée and everybody. But when I look back at this film, which I saw about 10 days ago now, I can't remember any one moment for Jennifer Lawrence, which is for such a charismatic star. Whatever you think of, you know, of her movie choices or of her, she is always someone very charismatic. Like I remember when I, you know, Silver Linings Playbook, which is a movie I enjoyed. I would remember all her scenes in that. But somehow she's a little subdued in this film and completely unmemorable, which is surprise, which is very surprising to me. Yeah, and I think she also, she was uh, sort of shortchanged by the hair and makeup department, but I mean, intentionally, because <laughs> the scientists are not supposed to look glamorous, you know. Yeah. Uh, they can't look more glamorous than the Brie Vantes of the world. So, I mean, yeah. I think it makes sense that they're sort of like de-glammed or whatever you want to call that. Um, but it's true. No, I think for me, actually, honestly, like if we're talking about relationships, in the film, and, I, and I'm talking about romantic relationships, I found it easier to accept her developing thing or whatever you want to call it um, with Timothée's character than I found it to accept uh, the, the Leo-Kate relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of bought that, that that was something that that could happen or that, that might, where she just sort of at a certain point is like, I don't give a, mm, let's just do this, you know? <laughs> Um, also, because I think we know that she, the actress, would do would she has that kind of attitude as well. So we totally buy into it, you know. Yeah. Be like, oh, f this, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we we might all be dead in a couple of hours. So. <laughs> yeah, um, it's like end of end of life romance. Like you're the one in front of me. What else? It's believable. Yeah. What else can I do? Yeah. Whatever. Let's go. Oh. Yeah, no, you look you look like that guy from Call Me By Your Name with worse hair. I mean, I think you'll do, you know, it's like, what, are you going to find anything better? Probably not. I mean, you're going to waste time sending him to the hairdressers? Probably not. I mean, let's just get on with it, you know. Yeah. That's the sort of vibe that I was getting. And and, um, and I think that that is actually, in terms of the writing, since we're, we're talking about the writing quite a lot, I thought that that was an interesting thing where they both, they give both the scientists um, a sort of romantic uh relationship to to another character mm-hmm. um i thought that, i thought that there was uh there's a, like some interesting parallels there um also in terms of uh how they end up in the in that sort of final dinner scene you know who's there and who isn't there um and then uh what does that tell us about uh what the reasons for which people get into romantic relationships in the first place especially if the world is about to end so mm-hmm. um yeah i thought that there was i mean if you would take the the Timothy character out of the film, even though he's not, the plot wouldn't really change. 
But I think the heart of the movie would be different, or there would be less heart in it, actually. Because yeah, and, and Jennifer know. Lawrence would have much less to do. Because oh, totally. basically, the second half of the film is just her sort of trying to get to know Chalamet and sort of resigning herself to maybe, okay, he's the one man left on Earth. And yeah, I can, I can deal with that. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and I think it's good that, that, that that's there, even though, I mean, it's not particularly original what we're seeing or they're not doing anything like you know there's no big revelation on on, a, on her behalf which i i don't know i i think it gave it a sort of sweetness and and i mean i remember those scenes with her a lot more actually than the first half when like when she's discovering the whole thing and there's a lingering sweetness there that that made the movie feel a little bit more grounded in the second half and also if you if you wouldn't have that i think the dinner scene in the end would have felt not grounded enough for it to really hit home, you know? Yeah, so so Jennifer Lawrence, sweet, according to Boyd, unmemorable, according to me. But, <laughs> but I think I'm, like, I think the worst performance in this film um, is Jonah Hill. I, I could not stand Jonah Hill in this film. He, and, and also part of it was, like, the, he was at the q and I was at the screening that I was at and he sort of hijacked the Q&A. Like, I'm, I mean, come on. We have Meryl Streep, we have Leo DiCaprio. Let them talk. He sort of hijacked that Q&A with sort of some fart jokes. And he, every time Leo would start speaking, he would do like a fart noise. It was annoying, unfunny. But I also think he's annoying and unfunny in the film. And he talked about how, in all the interviews I saw with him about how he and Meryl improvised a lot, but I just thought it was completely unfunny. It's sort of that humor that I just don't fly with. It's very sort of basic. Um, and so if I am giving like um, a Razzie for this movie, uh, I'll give it to, to Jonah Hill. But it's so funny. He's sort of polarizing. I've heard from so many people that Jonah's is their favorite performance in this film. Oh wow! Um, I wouldn't go that far. I don't agree with you, but I I, I, would, I wouldn't say he's a he's a favorite performer. I mean, I am not someone who is a particular fan of his work because, especially his more comedic work. I think it's um yeah, it lacks a little bit of nuance maybe for my taste. Maybe I'm being very European when I say this, but uh, it's um. But I think in this movie actually, since his character is such a sort of imbecile, I mean, a real idiot, um, who talks mm-hmm. about uh, how his mother the president is and how he would totally bone the president um, if it weren't his mother, uh, if she yeah. weren't his mother. It's, and I, this is obviously, you know, a Trump and Ivanka joke. Oh, totally. I mean, and yeah. this is, again, it's just the, the roles are reversed. Um, yeah. And here it's coming from the, here's coming from the child towards the father more than the other way around. But uh, even so, I think it's, it's a sort of an easy target, but I, I think he sells that because he is so goddamn annoying in the film, but I think that that's on purpose. I mean, really, that's how I, yeah, that, you know, he's supposed to be the absolute worst sort of person that you would want to be chief of staff in, in a government. Um, and he, he totally embodies that. So he does a good job from my point of view. Someone who sort of loves Meryl and loves Meryl when she tries, tries to do comedy. I felt like he sort of undercut her by all this improvising because basically Meryl's scene are 100% with Jonah Hill like everything she's in Jonah is in except for one or two and then she has she interacts with the other actors but Jonah is still there and I just felt can you just keep the camera on Meryl because I think she could do something here instead of Jonah stealing one more moment for another unfunny joke or at least to me they were all unfunny yeah <laughs> yeah no I think I mean I, I there I must say there was a, a great sense of satisfaction and relief with that really fantastic um, sort of like slow setup or slow build to 
us figuring out what happens in like during like in the launch center towards the end where uh the Rylands character leaves and then Meryl also leaves and then the Jonah character is still there. Yeah. <laughs> and then I mean of course we know that the punchline is coming, but there was so much satisfaction in that moment, like in the in the very last punchline of the of the film that we talked about earlier. I think it's a, there's a sense of like the really annoying characters when they get a sort of sense of comeuppance or, or when they're treated unfairly, but in a way that is satisfactory for the audience because they have been such idiots or they have been horrible people. Um, I think that there is some kind of satisfaction and some kind of relief in that. Um, Absolutely. So this is the first movie that Kate Blanchett and Meryl Streep are in. And I think um, as somebody who loves both these actresses and was always sort of wanted them to be in a movie together. This was not the movie that I wanted Kate and Meryl to be in the first time. Like, I think I always expected <laughs> if a movie has both Kate Blanchett and Meryl Streep in it, it will be about Kate Blanchett and Meryl Streep. And they would have the two biggest roles and they would, most of their scenes will be against each other. I think they are in one scene where, and it's a group scene where almost the whole cast is in the scene. And basically Meryl, again, is interacting with Jonah and Kate is only interacting with Leo. So no interaction whatsoever between Kate and Meryl. Unfortunately, if you wanted to see that in this movie, this is not the movie for that. So from that perspective, um, I'm very disappointed, Adam McKay. Obviously not somebody who is into these actors interacting together. Um, But (laughs) I wanted to ask you as a fun exercise. So when I think of Kate and Meryl and what I want them to be together, I always, you know, Kate is somebody who's known for her theater work as much as for her film work. So I always think of like maybe, and then, you know, Meryl did August Osage County, which was a a play first. So I would think something like that, which is, you know, Mm. it's basically they're against each other, the whole film. That's something I would do. Or if they ever make, the maids, which Kate did with Isabel Huppert on stage here in New York. Maybe oh, Meryl yeah. can take the Huppert part. Um, something like that. What would you like to see Kate and Meryl do, um, Boyd? <laughs> this, I think this is a very, very tough question because for me, I love both actresses, but for me, they have such different energies. So I'm having a, a, a sort of hard time trying to imagine them interacting because for me, they are such different yeah, their their auras are very different, if that makes sense. I don't want to get yeah. too esoteric about it, but um, so I have, I'm having a little bit of uh, difficulty trying to imagine them in a movie together, uh, where they would be like the two main protagonists or protagonists and antagonists. Um, that said, I mean, when I'm thinking about the work that they've done, and if there's a movie where one could have been in some in the other's movie, I'm the first thing that came to mind to me was why not get rid of Judy Dench and Notes in a Scandal and put Meryl there. And I think that movie would totally work. Sacrilegious. Judy is amazing. <laughs> she is. <laughs> but so is Meryl. Um, but I mean, I was just looking for, I'm like, there must be an example of like some kind of plot or some kind of thing where those two energies would work together. Mm-hmm. I don't see them playing like mother and daughter or something like something stupid. Like I, for me, they're too different as, as, Mm-hmm. Actresses, so I I would have a hard time believing that. But the the notes in the scandal setup, I would totally buy into that. So yeah, that would be my answer then. <laughs> notes in the scandal, that yeah. one. the sequel, or they can do an I don't know a new version. As long as they keep the version with Dame Judy. Um, yeah, I, yeah, no, we're not getting rid of it. I mean, yeah. this is just like a play. I mean, plays we do. Every yeah, we year do all the time. Past. Yes. Yeah, so why not do that with movies? I mean, I never understood why people said, "Oh, it's a remake. It's not good." It's like we do it on stage every year. With like yeah, a totally. lot of plays, like what's 
what's the issue? Like, if it's good, it's good. I mean, most of the time remakes are bad, but that's another issue. That doesn't have anything to do with the fact that it's a remake. Yeah. I mean, another movie that I really love and I always wanted, um, and, you know, I'm not pro-English language versions or English language remakes of non-English language movies just for the sake of it. But, you know, I'm thinking of Francois Ozon's um, Eight Women. And I think just because there is so many chances for so many actresses in that movie. So why not make a version in Spanish and a version in English and a version in, you know, whatever language you want to do so we can get more of that. And I think maybe Meryl in the Catherine Deneuve movie and maybe Kate is in the in the Hooper movie or uh, not the movie. Kate in the Hooper role. Yes. (laughs) So maybe that one or. No, I think that that's, a, that's actually a very, it's a very good idea. Also because the piece is so rich. And I mean, I need to know much to Douglas Cirque and Agatha Christie like rolled into one. Mm-hmm. Like what's not to love about that? But it would make sense to make an American version of that because Douglas Cirque is so obviously uh, an American reference. Um, yeah, no, I would definitely love that. I don't know if I would cast them in those two roles though. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I mean, there's, all the parts are delicious in that. Yeah. Um, and I do think it's one of Isabelle Huppert's most underrated roles because she is totally. like her comedic timing is like next to none, but no one is using it, which is, yeah, um, very, very annoying. Yeah, <laughs> um, maybe maybe Kate in the Fanny Ardant role because I think- Yeah, that's what, I think that sort of cattiness and that sort of like, the yeah, I think I think that would play better um, yes. for me. Um, and then we can have the the Nerve uh, the role being played by Meryl Street, and then yeah. um, I said they can have the cat fight together, which is delicious. <laughs> yeah, because I yeah. think if I re- I'm trying, I'm remembering the movie more, and I think Hooper is more mousy in that, which is not something that Kate has ever done. Um, no, exactly. I, I think that there's this like a specific comedic timing of timing that you need when you're playing a mousy, like invisible character that is still funny. That is really, really. Mm-hmm. Hard, a hard balancing act to do and in any case we haven't seen k do it. maybe she can do it who knows she can do a lot of things but we've never seen it before so i have yeah. a hard i have a harder time imagining that um, i mean but she most... are down role she's in her sleep yeah yeah the are down role i think is is better absolutely you're right and i think maybe like kate plays the opposite of mousy in in a lot of her characters she's the most exceptional person in any room she's in like if you like i think that's sort of like a thorough, a through line in all her characters. Like, you know, Carol is Carol. No, you, you're not going to look at anybody else but, but Carol. Um, even in, you know, in The Aviator, she's Catherine Hepburn. He, Elizabeth is Elizabeth. So, so she's always plays the person everybody else around her in a movie frame looks up to, um, as opposed to, you know, somebody in the corner that nobody <laughs> notices. No, but I, th- I think and that's why it's interesting that they, that they chose to, to give her this, particular role because it sort of feels like it is slightly cast against type because I mean she's taking that baggage into the role of being because she thinks Brie thinks that she's the most exceptional person in the room even though she's mm-hmm. really not <laughs> um so they're sort of playing with that and having fun with that and I think that was probably one of the reasons why Kate thought it was an interesting role to play because yeah she gets to sort of play with her persona and and her the way people see her as an actress and then use that against the character in a way if that makes sense yeah, totally. And I was sort of wondering when we were talking about um, talking together about this film, I think one of the things you suggested, Boyd, was like, is there a through line of all, because Kate is a movie star and she is a leading lady and all of that, but she does do a lot of supporting parts and she has done them throughout the years. Um, I mean, on this podcast, we have discussed some of those, including 
The Man Who Cried and Hannah. Other ones are Babel, The Shipping News. And I, I sort of don't know why um, she would want to take these roles, except maybe to work with these directors or with, with the cast. Um, what do you think? No, I, I've been trying to figure out if there's like a, a yeah, like a sort of through line or like a, a recurring thing that we mm-hmm. see. Like, why would she say yes to a to a smaller role? If because I mean, she, I'm, we're all assuming that she gets offered all the big roles. I mean, she can you know she can choose whatever she wants to. So why would she do smaller roles? But I, to be honest, I find it very hard. I mean, it seems like yeah, she's attracted to material and and and. Uh, She's attracted to to directors maybe and and different genres. I think she she enjoys doing different genres mm-hmm. and and also different kinds of acting. Um, I must say I'm not a very very big fan of Kate doing super broad normally. I think in this movie she, it works, but like when she's doing it in in Janet Jones and the Crystal Skull, for example, <laughs> um, or even in Cinderella, uh, where she's the evil stepmother. For me, it becomes a little bit too one note. She's good, but she's there's a lot of variation there, mm-hmm. which again is probably also due to the writing. Um, yeah, because there's a t- there's a tendency to make villains not very interesting. I mean, they're just villainous. That's really the yeah. only thing that's interesting about them. Um, but um, no, I I think that otherwise, like I mean, when she did things like I don't know, coffee and cigarettes, or or uh, I'm not there, or life aquatic Jujitsu. I mean, these are like small parts that are I think very interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And they are completely in in function of uh, what the movie needs, and it had, have nothing to do with uh, any sort of ego or sense of like I need my character needs to be mm-hmm. the reason why this movie exists. Um, and I think she has fun with those things. I think it must also be. I mean, I'm completely projecting here. I mean, I'm imagining that if I were an actor, like if you were the lead character and you have to carry every single movie, it might just mm-hmm. be nice every now and then not yep. to have to, sh- to shoulder that burden for every single project that you do, you know, just yeah. sort of have fun in the background and hang out and work with interesting people and then not have to do 10,000 press tours and, exactly. um, you know, have to have to do that. And then also sort of be the guilty party if the movie doesn't make as much money as it's supposed to and all that part, all that yeah. stuff. So I think, um, I think that must be part of the attraction, right? I'm, I'm imagining in any case, I mean, I'm not in yeah. case head, but, um, I think so. I think I remember something um, she said when she took on Thor Ragnarok with Take a Latiti, another sort of singular director, wh- wherever you stand on on his filmography. And, you know, I think that... Singular came, is the perfect word. Yeah. <laughs> perfect. And I think that was sort of after Blue Jasmine and Carol, which were two movies that she had to carry, basically. She's the biggest star in them. In Blue Jasmine, she's the only star. And she had to sort of do like those year-long press tours that started a film festival. And then six months later, you're still talking about the movie. And I think after that, she just, in that interview, she sort of implied that she just wanted to come in for a few days, play with Teika, and then not have to do anything else. Um, and just go back and wear, to life. And wear cool headgear. I mean, that is like, you know, I would have signed up just for that. I mean, yeah, <laughs> totally. And, and, and I think also like something like you, she, I don't know if you've seen Nightmare Alley. She is in Nightmare Alley and she's so no, I haven't seen it yet. No, uh, you know, half the movie is about her, but it's also a movie where only half the movie is about her. And basically she probably didn't have to be in this shoot for four months. She probably came in for, I don't know, one month of the four. And then now she's not doing any press for it because there are other stars who can do press for it. Um, and so, you know, she gets to be back in her life. But if it was 
you know, something like the movies that we love, um, like Blue Jasmine or Carol and, you know, or Elizabeth, those movies are around her. So I guess she just gets to do one of these every few years. And I know she she's the main actor in the new Todd Field, which comes out next year. So it's a balance. I think that's that's a good way to look at. But also, like, I love these movies because, like, who, why wouldn't we want to see her play herself and her cousin in Coffee and Cigarettes? Like, um, exactly. it's one of her best performances, one of her funniest moments on screen. Um, and even with Brie Yvante here, I still laugh about every time she says to Leo, tell me how the world is going to end. And it's, I think it's just so funny that she is really <laughs> getting off on that. And like, now we have that scene on Netflix. You can watch it anytime you want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can, I can see some memes coming for sure because uh, I mean, I just, I don't know. I mean, the character is, is a small supporting role, but it's, a, I don't know. There's something inherently funny about someone who has to package everything in a very sort of positive, bright, joyous way, and then getting off on the fact that the world is ending, you know? Yeah. Um, There's just, yeah, that is too delicious, I think, to sort of pass up. And I assume that if you would propose it in that way to her, it's like, okay, it's just a couple of days work, but this is the character. She'd be like, oh, I, I know how to do this. Yeah. So we might be a little mixed on Don't Look Up. I don't think it hits all of its targets, but there is enough there to make this movie interesting to watch. One of the reasons, obviously, is Kate um, in a very funny small part. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that, and I think the movie is entertaining enough. I mean, that, the question is, is it thought provoking enough? Could it have been more thought provoking or whatever? Yes, maybe. But um, no, I had a good time watching it, um, yeah. which, you know, nowadays is as good a reason as any to go watch a movie. So, uh, Yeah, totally. Um, and it's on Netflix. It's, it's an easy watch for most people. Go, go, go and watch it, guys. It's, uh, it's fun. Yes. So I'll ask you a couple of questions about Kate and the podcast. I always ask my guests about, um, is there a movie that you think people don't talk about, a Kate Blanchett film that people don't talk about that you love and you'd like maybe more people to talk about? Um, I think my answer to this would have to be Heaven, the Tom Tickware film that she did um, mm-hmm. from like the early 2000s, 2002 maybe, mm-hmm. uh, if memory serves, um, which is a very unusual sort of drama um, that asks some very interesting questions. The screenplay is by Krzysztof Kieslowski, who did like mm-hmm. The Ten Commandments and Red, White, yeah. Blue, um, and who was supposed to direct it as well, but he died before the movie went into production. Um, so it's a very very interesting story and i think people don't talk about it enough because the, when the movie came out people were not really sure what it was because if i think if the tone of it directed it yeah mm-hmm. if if Lusky would have directed it then people like know okay this is the kind this is how you look at his film because people have seen red white and blue and they've seen the double life of veronique and they've seen the ten commandments so they know the kind of sort of like moral ethical questions that he's asking and that he's sort of probing and how he goes about that. Mm-hmm. But I had the impression that when it came out, people were just sort of like, this is a Tom Tickler film. He'd done like uh, run, Lola run. And they were sort of like, he's asking moral questions. What the hell is this? <laughs> um, and she wasn't, she wasn't super famous at that time. And she was like a known actress, but she was not the superstar that she's mm-hmm. now. Um, and I it think was right before the Lord of the Rings. So it because exactly right before most of the world got to know her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I, I think people were just a little bit sort of uh, uh, not sure how to how to read that film or how to 
um, yeah, how to deal with it, which I think is a shame because it's it's not a perfect film, um, but very few films are. But I think it's one of her most interesting roles and her most um, interesting work um, yeah. because the screenplay is so interesting. So yeah, yeah. I agree. I like I like Heaven too, and I think it is to your point um, a sort of different role for her. And we did an episode on Heaven now a few years ago. So if you are listening to this, just go watch Heaven and then listen to the Sundays with Kate episode about heaven where I talked to Kyle Stevens. And one thing about um, Don't Look Up that I wanted to bring is that I love seeing Kate and Leo together again. Like I know they did The Aviator, which was one of my favorite performances of her. And I think in that movie, um, she sort of was the best sparring partner for Leo, who had a lot of other sparring partners in that film, but she was the one who stood out. And in this, the sort of Kate and Leo is not a big part of Don't Look Up, but it is most of her scenes are with him. And so I love that dynamic and I want them to to do something um, maybe a little more substantial than Don't Look Up, which is um, um, so if any directors are out there, Kate and Leo, get them together. But Boyd, I'll turn the question to you. Who would you like to see her work with? Oh, my God. I mean, how long do you have? Uh, <laughs> I no, I mean, like good actors, you want to see them work with everyone. No, it's yeah, how, totally. How these things work with with good actors, and um, no, I think it would be what would be interesting for me to see. Inter- if we're talking about directors, um, I would love to see her do like a feminine Scorsese film, um, also because he hasn't done one in such a long time. He mostly yeah. does movies about male characters, and it's really time for him to do another one about a woman or women. <laughs> yes. Um, so I would. I, I, and I think she she has that kind of right energy for that kind of, um, you know, like, I don't know, find somewhere in American history, like a build a butcher that is that was a woman and let's make a movie about her. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I love totally that. Yeah, Kate totally as build the butcher. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. And then Leo can 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 work with her on that. So we've got that sorted out, too. Yeah. Um, and in terms of other actors, I think. I would love to see her uh, in a film with Isabelle. I mean, I know she's worked together on stage. They've worked together on stage, but I would love to see like something where it's the two of them. And I have no idea what kind of genre it would be. Maybe you have some ideas. Yeah. But, um, I think what that energy very... would they bring together? Because they are both singular actors, but also very different energies. Like the tension, I think, would be so interesting. Because Kate has a tendency sometimes to go big and do these stylized performances, and Isabel of more like less, less, less. Um, so yeah, exactly. Think... Isabel is like strip everything away until yeah. there's only like the core left. Um, yeah. Which I think might be very interesting, you know. But they could be, I don't know, like. A long lost half siblings or something, you know, that didn't know that the other existed and one grew up in France and one grew up in Australia. <laughs> yeah. um, and then they need to, they, I don't know, the, the the parent they have in common dies and suddenly they have an estate in the south of France that they need to figure out what to do with. I don't know, something like that. Yeah. I would watch that. Um, totally. I would watch it too. Let's, Kate and, Kate and Huppert, that would be amazing. Um, boy, this was such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me about Don't Look Up and Kate. It was wonderful um, to talk to you. Um, before we go, let our listeners know where they can find you and your work. Okay, well, um, first of all, thank you. It was uh, a joy to talk about such an interesting uh, actor who, who can do so many different things. And I mean, that's what, I mean, the, the, the very best actors, I think, are you know, the ones that can do and comedy and drama and satire and 
yeah. um, all these different things. Um, because it's, I mean, they, these are really different, very different jobs. And I think, yeah, us, even us critics, sometimes we forget that it's such a different, I mean, it's almost like it's a different, it's a different job entirely playing a comedy or, or playing a drama as an actor. Um, you know, it's not a given that all the actors can do that. I mean, we've seen enough examples in film history of people that shouldn't be doing another genre <laughs> than the thing that they're known for. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, first, um, so that was that. Uh, Filmboid is where I'm at on, on social media, Twitter mainly, I have to say. Um, I'm trying to cut down on social media stuff, so I'm filtering <laughs> out all the rest. Um, so just film as in Filmboid, as in my name, B-O-I-D, and otherwise you can read me at film verdict of course um as i explained earlier um and yeah that's about it yeah thank you so much Boyd. and you can find me on twitter at me underscore says and follow the podcast on twitter and instagram at sundays with kate and we will continue going through the kate blanchett filmography on this final season of the podcast every sunday so until next time thank you for listening